in Hebrews 10, starting at verse 16 and going to verse 22. Hebrews 10, 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You may be seated. Well, it's a blessing to be here this morning. The service, the worship service, I believe, was running on some pretty smooth tracks, and we were moving forward until several moments ago where some of you fell off because you were given a word problem, and you're still trying to figure out how many years three or 4,000 church services comes to. I saw Brendan was using the back of his eyes for a calculator. Did you figure it out? How many years? That's not what I came up with. So. All right, I think we can move on. Today I'd like to talk about Shiloh. Um, recently, I saw an interview uh, with an archaeologist by the name of Dr. Scott Stripling, who is leading the excavation at Tel Shiloh. He described what they're finding at the site of ancient Shiloh. And Shiloh, uh, you probably know, is north of Jerusalem. It's in the west bank of present-day Israel, so it's not um, the safest place to visit. A tell, spelled T-E-L, is just simply means a mound or a hill. So a tell in archaeology is an artificial topographical feature, a species of mound consisting of accumulated and stratified debris of a succession of consecutive settlements at the same site, the refuse of generations of people who built and inhabited them and of natural sediment. Are we good? Okay, so if you're standing on the hillside in Israel, uh, you might look out over the landscape and find sort of an odd-looking mound or a hill. And you'll even notice that there's layers in, in the uh, formation of this, this tell, this mound. And so basically what happens is, is people long ago uh, built a village and maybe an earthquake or some kind of destruction came along and it crumbled or it just deteriorated after they moved out. Um, maybe 500 years later, 1,000 years later, another uh, people group comes in and they find stones lying around and they look for good foundations and they sort of build at that same area using some of the same foundations. And uh, if this happens for thousands of years... You sort of get this, uh, this mound uh, shape. So this is what you see some places in Israel. These are called tells. Um, so my definition of a tell is simply a place where you can tell that somebody built upon a previous foundation uh, again and again. So this is present-day Shiloh, or the Hebrew people would probably say Shiloh 
It is a tell. It's a place where various people groups have lived on and off again for the past 4,000 years, according to the things that the archaeologists are finding. So in Israel, when you begin to dig at a tell, uh, of course, you start at the top and you dig down. And maybe the first layer that you get to is from maybe a thousand years ago, um, maybe the Crusaders. And then you dig a little further and uh, you find another people group, maybe the Byzantine uh, era. This would be the Romans, maybe at the time of Christ, about 2,000 years ago. And then you keep digging and, and you get to the the time period of uh, the people of Israel, um, the 12 tribes, and, um, and then beneath that is the Canaanite era. And so the further down you go, the, the further back in history you, you adventure. So at ancient Shiloh, they have been excavating, and they have excavated to the depth of what Dr. Stripling says could very well be the floor of the tabernacle uh, where Eli and his sons served. And he thinks that they have found the actual gate where Eli heard the news of his sons being killed and of the Ark of God being captured, uh, the very place where Eli died. They found a structure with uh, the same dimensions as what's given in the biblical text describing the tabernacle. And right now they're digging at the spot where uh, Dr. Stripling and others believe the Ark of the Covenant would have rested in the Holy of Holies. So ancient Shiloh was where the children of Israel worshipped. Um, when they came into the land of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, they set up the tabernacle uh, near Jericho at Shiloh. And this was when they came into the promised land. It is where the priest lived and served, and the people of Israel traveled to Shiloh annually, or maybe up to three times a year, to sacrifice. And for over 350 years, Shiloh was a place of redemption, forgiveness, uh, atonement, reconciliation. It was where God dwelt. One of the things they found in Shiloh was uh, uh, bone pits, um, and these bones are uh, predominantly from the right side of the animal. And Leviticus 7 is one of the passages that uh, gives instructions for sacrifice, and it tells us that um, the right thigh, the right side of the animal, is for the priest's use. And so it seems like the things that they're finding are matching up with the biblical text. And of course, this does not surprise us as followers of Jesus. Another interesting find at Tel Shiloh is a snail shell that was imported from the Mediterranean Sea. And this particular snail um, contains the blue-purple dye that uh, was required for the garments of the priests. They also found clay uh, pomegranates uh, that are referenced in Scripture, and they found what they believe to be three of the four horns of the altar. Of course, they don't expect to find the ark in Shiloh. It was... Uh, taken into battle um, in an attempt to, to defeat the Philistines. And um, I think about 60 years later, the ark returned uh, to Jerusalem where the temple was, was built. And then Jerusalem became the center of worship. Prior to the temple being in Jerusalem, Shiloh was the place of worship. It was the central meeting point 
Shiloh is the place where Joshua met with the people to divide uh, the land and, and give it out to the 12 tribes of Israel. In the first year that they were in the land of Canaan, it appears like they would have met at Shiloh about six uh, different times. It's very clear that Shiloh was very important, and it was used, uh, basically served as the capital for the 12 tribes of Israel after they entered the promised land. Among the fascinating things we learn about Shiloh is that it is a very quiet place. It's very tranquil. It's peaceful. Um, they've done sound tests uh, at Shiloh, and they've concluded that a human, a human voice can be heard very easily at 500 meters. And of course, we, we understand this would be important in addressing large crowds without uh, modern amplification, so uh, it's, it seems to be a very peaceful and a very quiet place, which is actually what the word Shiloh means, tranquil, peaceful, uh, or gift. So Shiloh was a central place of worship. Uh, and um, this would have been during the time of the judges. And you remember what the Bible says about that time. These were dark days in the history of Israel. Um, there was no king, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. So toward the end of uh, the time of the judges, there is a terrible account of a Levite man who had a concubine that left him and so he went and searched for her, and he found her, Then he wanted to bring her home. So they were returning home, and he wanted to stop at um, a Jebusite town, which would have been probably Jerusalem at that time, before it had been conquered. But he was convinced to go further into an Israelite town, and so they traveled on until they reached one of the towns in the territory of Benjamin. They spent the night there. And that night, the concubine was abused and misused by some of the men of Benjamin. These men are called sons of Belial, and based on their actions, this was an apt description of the men. And the woman died as a result of their awful and cruel depravity. And this resulted, without going into a lot of gruesome detail, in a civil war in 11 tribes of Israel against Benjamin. And I'm not going to describe the carnage that took place during and after the war with Benjamin. Um, but the Israelites all said, actually they, they swore, that they would never give their daughters uh, in marriage to anyone from the tribe of Benjamin. So after the war ended, they made, uh, they made an oath and they all gathered together uh, to build an altar and to worship God. And they realized that Benjamin obviously was missing. They had just basically wiped them out. Also, it seems like the people of Jabesh Gilead, for some reason, did not show up. And so the Israelites thought that they needed to be punished. And so they came up with a plan to replenish the tribe of Benjamin. Um, they, they killed a lot of the people at Jabesh Gilead, but they spared 400 young girls, and they sent them to live at Shiloh. And then later on, they invited the Benjamites to take these, uh, these women to be their wives. And so we have this strange story about Benjamin, the Benjamites catching the daughters of Shiloh as they came out and sort of did this ritual dance. This was at Shiloh. And remember, we're talking about a time in Israel's history where everybody did what was right in their own eyes. A very dark time in their 
nation's history. So I already mentioned that Shiloh was where Eli and his two sons served. Um, in the, the story that I just related to you, uh, you heard that some of the sons of Benjamin were sons of Belial. And um, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12, we're introduced to Eli's two sons, and it says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. Uh, the sins of these men, these men was very great, the Bible says. The sons of Eli, uh, who were the servants of God, did not know God, and they detested the sacrifices. Um, but it says about Samuel that he was a child wearing a linen ephod, um, and he, he ministered before the Lord. Samuel was Shiloh's bright spot. He was, um, well, you know the story in 1 Samuel 1 and 2, his, his barren mother Hannah, who uh, was constantly heckled by her husband's other wife, uh, because she had no children, so on an annual pilgrimage to Shiloh, she cries out to God for a son, and God uh, hears her prayer, God provides, and she says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him back to you. I'll give him back to you in service for his entire life. And so her prayer was, was answered, and the, the prayed-for son uh, became the promised son. She promised him back to God, and so... Um, Samuel served under Eli uh, from the time that he was a child. And in 1 Samuel 3, verse 1, uh, God speaks to Samuel, and the Bible explains to us that in those days this was very rare. There was not uh, much uh, word from the Lord, and there was no vision, no open vision. So in 1 Samuel 3, 19, I'm reading now, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and did not let one of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So this promised child was a very bright spot in Shiloh's darkest hour. And the Philistines, uh, at the end of Eli's life, captured the ark. They killed his, Eli's two sons. And when Eli got the news, he... He fell down, he broke his neck, and he died. And this was the end of an era of the presence of God in Shiloh. And then we jump ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And Samuel is serving as a judge in Israel. Uh, Samuel is sort of the, the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. And um, he's serving in Israel, he's serving the people of Israel, and God is giving him Victories, And so in 1 Samuel 7, 12, we read, Then Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even unto Gath. And the coast thereof did Israel deliver out of the hands of the Philistines." And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year in a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And his return was to Ramah. From there was his house, and there he judged Israel. And there he built an altar unto the Lord. And we'll talk about that uh, annual circuit a bit later. So we've been talking about the place 
of Shiloh and some of the people who lived there and um, the activities of those people. Now I'd like to, to turn from looking at the place of Shiloh to look at the parable of Shiloh. What can be learned uh, from the people and the place of Shiloh? Well, do you think that Hannah regretted making that promise to God? That promise that was attached to her plea for a son, do you think she regretted promising him back to God? Do you think the blessing of a son was overshadowed by her promise to give him back to God? I believe that Hannah, in light of the promise she made, spent most every waking moment preparing Samuel to serve God. I believe that Hannah introduced Samuel to God. And I think that, um, you know, this, this is, I, I can just picture her explaining to Samuel how he came to be, her desperate cry for a son, and how God answered her prayer. And I think she taught Samuel that God answers those who seek him. He answered her desperate cry. I believe that, that Hannah directed Samuel's thoughts about God and who God was, his sovereignty, his plan for the people of Israel, um, his love for them, and his care for his children. Hannah was a mother, and I think that mothers have a special gift of directing the vision of their children. Uh, most days, I am in awe of my children's mother, um, how she, in nearly every conversation, is guiding their thinking, she is directing their vision. She is uh, educating their minds and hearts and helping them think through uh, various life situations and scenarios. And it seems like she does this naturally and, and without trying. And I can sit there and I try to conjure up this uh, perfect scenario and uh, time that I can talk to my children about some of their questions or I can direct their minds. And um, this takes a while for me. And um, I think through this, I get it right, and I turn around to talk to my child, and they're looking me straight in the eye, and it's uh, a lot of time wasted. But uh, my wife is much better at this, and it seems like uh, most mothers uh, have this built-in awareness that sooner rather than later, they will need to release this child and give him back to God. And there's an urgency that they live with, and it is truly a gift from God that, that mothers have. And I remember um, a place where I grew up in our old house where I was standing, where I told my mom, I think maybe six or eight years old, that when I grow up, I'm going to be a baseball player. And um, she simply said without much thought or uh, fuss that she would prefer if I'd be a preacher or something along those lines. And uh, here we are 40 years later and I have not made my millions uh, playing for the Phillies. But even apart from the position that I currently have, my mom, without even trying, was redirecting my vision. She was guiding my, my thoughts. And um, through the years, I've often tried to forget those words, but somehow I haven't, and I can't. But I want to encourage you mothers... Um, to continue to inform and direct and redirect your children's vision and their, uh, their hearts, their desires. It's a gift that you have. And I know that um, 
your relationships with your kids don't always look like uh, Hannah and what we perceive Hannah and Samuel's relationship to be, where everything was great and everybody was on the same page. Uh, your children probably don't walk into the kitchen and thank you for redirecting their vision and guiding their thoughts and all of that stuff. Um, but it's very important. So I want you to take courage and continue to do that. Uh, continue to speak into the lives of your children. Um, that effort into the direction of their lives is never wasted. It's almost always difficult, but it's never wasted. And so thank you, mothers, for taking the time to do that. Well, what do we learn from, from Eli's sons? What is the tale of these two sons? Eli's sons knew the sacrifice of God, but they did not know the God of the sacrifice. They were around the people of God, but they did not know the God of their people. And they were in the tabernacle of God, but they did not know the God of the tabernacle. They were near God and around the things of God, but they knew nothing of his presence, and God did not know them. So they sacrificed to a God they did not know. They looked to be in the work of God, but did not know him. They knew how to act, but did not care for his abiding presence, or his word, or his vision. They rejected the warning of their father and his God, and in turn, God rejected them. The tale of Eli's two sons is that while they were servants of God outwardly, they were sons of Belial. What about me and you? Um, what about us? Are we like Eli's sons who inherited a position with God but did not know God? They were given a place of service but detested the sacrifice of God. They grew up hearing about God's word and hearing God's word, but did not acknowledge the value and importance of obeying it. Do you know God? Or do you know about God? Is your God present with you? Or is he reduced to an external practice? Do you know about God and what He requires and how He wants you to walk, but detest His sacrifice? Have you heard the warnings to turn from your evil heart, from the evil that is in your heart, but reject it? Do you know how to dutifully adapt to policy and practice, but fail to accept the person of Christ to rule in your heart? Are you a servant of God on the outside and a son of Belial on the inside? Now, I'm not asking these questions to our neighbors who don't claim to know God, and I'm not asking them to whatever churches around us that you think you're better than, but I'm asking these churches to, to us, to me. Do you know God, and does God know you? Eli's sons, who served in the temple, in the tabernacle, were sons of Belial. And they took the ark of God into battle, against the Philistines. It seemed like they understood that God was powerful, and they liked that. And they knew that he was a provider, and they, they liked that as well. Um, they even knew to some degree that he was the punisher or the judge, and they accepted that. So they reluctantly sacrificed. But they never understood God to be personal. 
And so they, they knew about God, but did not know God. They wanted God's protection and his provision, and they accepted his punishment at times, but they wanted nothing to do with knowing him personally. How tragic. In an era where God's presence was right there in the ark, in the tabernacle, with the people of Israel, that the sons of the priest were sons of Belial, who did not know God. They were nearby, but they never drew near. And they were in close proximity to God, but they never, were, they never even desired to draw close to him. In Exodus 20, verses 18 and 19, you can read about the children of Israel and they're wandering in the wilderness. Um, they requested that Moses goes and meets with God, but they didn't want to be in the presence of God. So they, 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 were, they would rather receive God's word secondhand from Moses than to go through the necessary um, requirements to enter God's presence themselves. They did not want the presence of God in their, in their life. They wanted his provisions and protection, but not his presence. James 4.8 says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And Hebrews 11.6 explains that drawing near to God requires uh, faith in, in two areas. Uh, first of all, we need to believe that he is, and that's pretty basic. Uh, we learned in our Sunday school lesson a few weeks ago that even the demons believe that God is. But the second thing is that we must believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And it seems to me that that is what the sons of Eli missed. So it is quite possible that we have more in common with Eli's sons than we would like to admit. Sometimes when we're given something uh, so precious, like a heritage of faith in God, we are handed this precious thing, uh, but it doesn't cost us anything. It's always been there, and it seems like it always will be there. And we've never really been without it. Uh, if we're not careful, we never really learn to seek God diligently with all of our hearts, because he's always been so accessible. He's, he's right here. He's all around us. So we live our lives around those who know God, and the things of God, and it appears like we may have the peace of God in our community. Sometimes visitors to this area will comment about, they, they just like the feeling of Lancaster County. They like the peace and the, the quietness and the tranquility that is here because of the noticeably religious people that live here. And whenever I hear that comment, I, I worry a lot about us. Because it sounds like Shiloh. It sounds like we have a place of tranquility and peace, a place of rest, a place where God is close. But is his presence known? So when people see me, do they see service? Or do they see surrender? Do they understand God to be impressed with external practice? Or do they understand God that is present and lives within us and radically transforms our hearts? Do they see a people of God? Or do they see the person of Jesus Christ? It is not enough for people to see God in us. 
or godliness in us, but they need to see Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God, and that's why he is the great offense. So service to God requires little. Surrender requires everything. The act of worships the act of worship are easy and require little effort. But to rest in God's abiding presence requires totality. It requires our total surrender. In Jeremiah 7, there's a warning to the people who are now living in Jerusalem. It says in verse 12 of chapter 7, But go ye now into the place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at first, and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, saith the Lord, and I spake unto you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called to you, but you did not answer, therefore I will do unto this house, which is called by my name, wherein ye trust, and unto the place which I gave to you and to your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up a cry, nor a prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. Psalm 78 is another warning about Shiloh. The psalm starts out in the beginning. It says, give ear, listen up, folks. Uh, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, uh, which, which we know because our fathers have told us, and we will not hide them from our children. And they, in turn, will t- tell their children. And so what the psalm actually ends up saying is... Uh, about Shiloh. Uh, It talks about all the deliverance that God provided and his provisions for his people. And then in the end of the chapter, it says, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh and the tent which he placed among them and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which he loved. And he built his sanctuary like high places, like the earth which he had established forever. He chose David also, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the ewes, great with, with young, he brought him to feed Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart, and guided them by a skillfulness of his hands. And I like that the end of those verses. It talks about the personal relationship that David had with the Lord and how that uh, then in turn became personal to the people that he was leading. So the tale of Eli's two sons shows us that there is only destruction and death on the path of those who serve God outwardly, but are sons of Belial inwardly. Thankfully, uh, the tale of two sons is not about the two sons of Eli, but rather it is the tale of the two promised sons, two gifted sons, two sons of peace, the two sons of Shiloh. Now Samuel, I would say, is the first son of Shiloh. Um, we, we understand his mother came to Shiloh, was promised a son, and gave him uh, back to the Lord. But the son of Shiloh that I really want to talk about is found in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. And these are the words that Jacob is giving to his sons as he's blessing them 
just before he passes. And it says, Jacob's final words to his sons, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now this is referring to Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Shiloh is a place of peace, but the person of peace, the person of Shiloh, is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And the writer in the book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to expose the problems and the incompleteness of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And he explains how Christ, the Messiah, uh, was God in the flesh, the promised Son who gave his life and shed his blood as the final offering for sin for the entire world for eternity. God didn't take on the attributes of angels, but he came as a man so that he could identify with our humanity, our weakness, our frailness, our, forget, our forgetfulness. And he also talks in Hebrews about how Abraham met Melchizedek and paid tithes to Melchizedek, this new priestly order. Um, and then Christ, he said, was not after the order of Aaron, but he was after the order of Melchizedek, uh, the new priesthood. And so it says that if the law, uh, I'm sorry, if, if the uh, priesthood changes, then the law is required to change uh, as well. And it goes on to bring up the fact that the law was weak uh, in that it could, it could not make anything perfect or complete, but only reminded them to return again with more offerings because they were a sinful people. But the better hope is to draw near to God. The law was weak and unprofitable, but the better hope, which is Jesus Christ, was perfect. In other words, drawing near to God through the Old Testament law and sacrifice was a shadow of the real promise. We now draw near to the we now draw near through the offering of Jesus Christ. He offered himself as the atonement for our sin. And so we don't need to continually offer sacrifices like they needed to in the past. But Christ died once for all, and there is no more offering that is needed. I'm going to read some verses from Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Um, but Christ, being a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place. He entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that we were under the First Testament, which they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And in chapter 10, he explains to us that the law was only a shadow of the real thing. And then he says several times, he repeats this, that God has no pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings. God has no pleasure in sacrifices and burnt offerings. Because of the work of Christ, the perfect lamb, we receive boldness, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, 
And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now some people, they will visit Israel and they will see the sights and um, they will be close to where God was and they will fall in love with the people of Israel. This is not my experience. Uh, the Bible describes God's chosen people as wayward, proud, arrogant, stiff-necked, and rebellious. And apart from the redemptive work of Christ, many remain in that state to this day. And I find their outward display of ritualistic religion obnoxious. The observable traditions held for centuries as blinding and their prayers to God empty and meaningless because of their arrogant and insistent denial of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. To me, one of the saddest stories in the human race is how Israel, God's chosen people, whose singular objective it was to show his glory to the nations, chose rather to show their own glory. And they made the message about God the message about them and about what they do externally rather than the inner transforming power of Messiah. The sacrificial system and law was meant to be their schoolmaster to prepare them to accept the atonement that Jesus, the Messiah, offered. And instead they refused it and they chose burdensome legalism over the free gift of grace that Jesus offered them. It is a tragedy that so many Israelites are just like Eli's sons. They participate in a ritual and outward display of godliness, but they, like Eli's sons, are sons of Belial. They have no connection to the, to the Lamb, which provided the atonement and the power to take away their sin and give connection back to God. Now, it's one thing to be critical of a people halfway around the world. That's easy. And it's quite another thing to look at our own culture and recognize where we have erred. And it's even more difficult to look deep into our heart and repent of the systems and depraved ways that we've conjured up within ourselves our own righteousness. So Eli's sons were servants of God, but they did not surrender to God. They wanted the power of God to go with them, but they avoided the presence of God in their personal lives. If you remember when David sinned with Bathsheba, as part of his repentance from sin, he tells us that it is the inward part of a man where God desires truth to be restored. And all of us uh, can hide things from each other. We can be one person on the outside and on the inside be something totally different. But with God, all things are open. He sees it all. And he alone has taken the punishment for all of my sin. And he wants to give all of his righteousness in exchange for all of my sin. But we need to come to him in faith, believing that he is and believing that he rewards those who diligently seek after him. He wants us and he wants you to chase after him like he is your only hope of salvation, forsaking all others and clinging only to Christ. So it's a relief that in Shiloh, the Lord began to speak to Samuel 
And there was finally a personal connection. Finally, Samuel, the prayed for and promised back to God son, was the bright spot in Shiloh. But I think we learn from his life that the first thing, um, the first part of serving the Lord is not serving. Uh, we heard this morning that service is not worship. Before service, there needs to be surrender. There needs to be commitment. There needs to be a seeking and a knocking and an asking. And just like Hannah and Samuel uh, fulfilled their promise, and Samuel served the Lord, he was given as a gift back to God for all of his life. So the father freely gave his son as a gift, the promised son of redemption, who gave, also gave his life for the sins of the people. And so we too, before service, must decide to seek God and to give to God all that is rightfully His. Your life is not your own. You were bought with a price. And it is reasonable, the Bible tells us, to then give our lives back to the Messiah who paid for them. There must be a personal connection before there can be meaningful service. And Samuel, in calling the Israelites back to God, begged them to turn to the Lord with all of their hearts. Not all of the outward ceremonies, but all of their hearts, and to prepare their hearts to serve him only. Now, you remember that Samuel, uh, towards the end of his life, had a circuit. He would travel from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, and then back home to Ramah. Um, Bethel was where they heard from God. They received the promise uh, from God as a nation. And Gilgal is, is near Jericho where they first entered the promised land. And this is like the promise was fulfilled. And then at Mizpah, they, they set up the memorial stone and they said, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. They remembered all the things that God had, had done. So they heard the promise. The promise was fulfilled. They remembered that God had done all these things. And then the last stop was back home in Ramah to build the altar and worship. And I think so often this step is missing in our personal lives. We like God's promises, we like his provisions, and we remember what he's done for us, but we really fail to connect with him on a personal level. We really fail to draw near. And the, the, uh, the invitation is wide open because of all that, that Christ provided for us on the cross. So in our lives, I believe there needs to be a circuit as well. When we hear from God... We claim his promises, we, we memorialize what he's done, but most importantly, we, like Samuel, must come back to the altar and abide with Jesus. We must return home and refresh our spirits with the presence of Almighty God. So it's very exciting to see what the archaeologists are finding at Shiloh and Dr. Scott Stripling, all the work they're doing. It's a reminder of the power and presence of God that, that once was, it's also a reminder of the danger of living outside of that presence. I'm grateful for the example of Samuel, the promised son who faithfully served and led God's people. But most of all, I'm grateful for the son of promise, Jesus Christ, our Messiah, the Savior of the world, my Savior, the Prince of Peace, our Shiloh, God with us. So after reflecting on this, I'm left to ask myself the question, 
And this is a question for all of us. Am I serving God? Or am I surrendering to God? Do I long for God's power, but deny His presence? And do, know, do I know about God, or do I actually know God? And am I abiding with Him and diligently seeking Him? Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the lesson that we can learn from Shiloh. And while it is uh, largely a negative lesson, I pray that You would help us to uh, learn what it means to draw near in full assurance of faith. Um, in Revelation, you, you say that you stand at the door and knock. But in Matthew, you tell us to knock, to seek, and to ask. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful with that part, with asking, with knocking, and with seeking. Help us to diligently seek you and draw near to you in full assurance of faith. Thank you for the gift of Shiloh, the Prince of Peace, Jesus, the Savior of the world. And I pray that as we, um, as we move on throughout our week, that we would always place our surrender before our service and that we would truly seek to know you, the Prince of Peace, the Savior of the world, and not just know the things about you. I pray that you would continue to guide us and direct us and revive us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.